you brought a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to open to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. It's Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, third book of the New Testament. We're going to pick up in verse 41, and out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask you to stand as we read this. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now pray with me. Father in heaven, these past couple of weeks we've been talking about our identity in you and who we are. We're grateful for the opportunity to do that, and as we continue on in it today, I'm asking very simply that you will open the eyes of our heart that we might see in us what you see. Would you help us accept that? Father, would you help us accept what we are created to be? Would you help us accept what we are designed to do? Would you help us once again simply to see ourselves as you see us and to accept it? Lord, it's a great design because you are a great creator. For that, we are very grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. If you're not careful with this passage... You will read it only on the surface, and that's easy to do unless you have some of the background. On the surface, you may look at this and say, well, my heavens, Jesus as a boy was disobedient and somewhat rebellious. I can't imagine that that is true about him, and it's not. That would be a surface understanding, a surface reading of this passage. On the surface, you might also look at this and say that Joseph and Mary were somewhat negligent as parents. How could they lose their child? That's not the case either. That's not what happened. If you get deeper into the passage and you really begin to put together some of the background information, it will give you strong understanding of what's taken place here. Meaning this, every Jewish man was commanded by God three times a year to make their way to Jerusalem for the celebration of certain feasts and festivals. I want you to see that for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. I want you to see it in the Bible. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 2, but go with me to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy is an easy book to find. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And we're going to read in verse 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. 
Now let's take those three feasts just so you understand them. Remember, we're looking deep into this passage that we might learn as much as we possibly can from it. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread is also the Feast of the Passover. Most Jewish people would tell you that it is a symbolic feast and festival allowing them to recognize their freedom from physical bondage or physical slavery. Then we go into the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks happens 49 days or 7 weeks after the Feast of the Passover. Most Jewish people would tell you that it is symbolic of freedom from idolatry or spiritual freedom. So everybody loves to celebrate at that feast. The Torah was presented at the Feast of Weeks, and it is still presented that way today. A lot of the Torah is read when they gather for that festival. And then there's the third one, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is symbolic of their wilderness wanderings and the shelters that they lived in while they were out there, tents or makeshift shacks. Still today in the nation of Israel, when they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they will erect tents or makeshift shacks, and they live in those. Messianic Jews will tell you that because that feast follows the harvest, and it is typically given as a celebration of God's provision and God's harvest, that it is also symbolic of the harvest of souls. But it requires a Messianic Jew to say something like that, a Christian Jew. And though there are a lot of Messianic Jews, they are still small in number. They're growing, but they're still small in number. So the Bible commands that all Jewish men must make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts every year. Joseph was a devout Jew. As a result of that, he would have followed this command. Now, there were some people, some Jewish men, that simply could not afford to get there for every feast. It was cost prohibitive. It was cost prohibitive for all of them to take their families to every one of those feasts. So usually they would pick one. Now, some of those men would choose only one feast to go to. Others would choose just one of those feasts to take their family to. Joseph probably fit in that latter category. He could only take his family to one of the feasts, and he chose the Passover. Everybody would choose the Passover. It was this beautiful sign of God's deliverance, so they would want to go. Because most people would choose the same feast, they would travel together in family groups, and if they didn't have enough extended family to make it safe for them, they would travel together in villages, making their way to Jerusalem, where they would stay together, they would provide for one another, they would watch over each other's children and family members, taking care of the needs of the whole. Well, that's what was happening here. When the festival was over, they were going to make their way back to Nazareth. So here's the way it would have played out. The women and the children would have been at the front of the caravan and the men would have been at the back. It would have been extremely easy for Joseph to believe that Jesus at 12 years old was either with his mother up front or with his friends. Nobody would have really noticed when they left Jerusalem. They just would have assumed everybody was together. Or Mary would have assumed from the front of the caravan that Jesus was with Joseph at the back of the caravan or with his friends. So they traveled for an entire day without recognizing that he wasn't with them. They weren't negligent. They were just doing life. 
That's all it was. They were just doing life the same way we would. We're not talking about you getting into the minivan after being at Disneyland and traveling a thousand miles down the road and then looking over your shoulder and seeing that there's an empty seat behind you and you forgot one of the kids at the park. It's not like that at all. Jesus could have been in the crowd very easily. So for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe it was that evening as they were setting up camp, they realized that he wasn't there. They got scared. Can you imagine the anxiety? Can you imagine all of the emotions that welled up inside of them? Our child is not here. So they walked back to the city. The first day they walked out. The second day they traveled back. The third day they spent looking all over the city trying to find him. You can picture what it must have been like for them. Mary was frantic. Joseph was trying to calm her down, saying, it's all right, we'll find him, we'll find him. He's probably at the carpentry shop, giving him a few pointers. It's all okay. The anxiety, the pressure, the stress, the worry, the fear, all of it was real. All of it was real. And then they find Jesus, and Jesus, just as calm as all get out, looks at him and says, well, why'd you look anyplace else? Did you realize I'd be in my father's house? This is where I'd be. Why'd you go anyplace else? Mary wasn't ready to hear that. She was still a little bit worked up, and you heard how it played out in the story. How could you do this to us? How could you do this to us? When Tina and I had been in Missouri for about two years working at the church we were at before here, we lost Katie. We would go to church on Sunday mornings at about 7.30 and leave between 1 and 1.30, depending on what happened with the invitation time. From the moment we first walked into the church, our kids would go to the nursery and they would go to the children's programming and we wouldn't see them for another five, six hours until the day was over. Tina would go and check on them throughout the course of the morning. I was always busy and so never had the opportunity to do that. She was oftentimes very busy as well, so she would just check in and and see what the kids were doing. Usually when everything was done, we were in the back of the church in the prayer room taking care of different needs with different individuals that had responded to the invitation time. So the children's ministry workers from the nursery all the way into junior worship would get tired of waiting on us and they would bring us our children. So we just knew that our kids would show up and everything would be good. We'd leave at 1, 1 in the afternoon. We'd go home and put them down for a nap and then we'd go back to church that night. How many of you remember Sunday night church? We went back to church on Sunday night. Same thing would happen again. We'd get there about an hour early. Our kids would go to the children's program. We would do church. We would handle things at the invitation time, and our kids would miraculously show up. One night, our, our two sons showed up, and Katie didn't. She wasn't there. Tina got pretty worried about it. She went to the nursery and found that the nursery was all shut up. All the lights were off, and all the people were gone, and Katie wasn't there. She came back and told me, and like Joseph, I said, oh, it's okay, honey, let's go look through the building. I was terrified. We went and looked through the building. We couldn't find her. Couldn't find her any place. And that terror, that fear, that anxiety just started to rise up within both of us. There were still several hundred people at the church that night. I think we'd had some sort of a fellowship time. The details of all of that are somewhat fuzzy to me, but I vividly remember locking the place down. I was in charge of the security ministry, said to a good friend of mine, also one of the elders, we got to lock it down because, Katie, we can't find her. And he was as scared as I was. So we locked the whole building down. We locked down the parking lot. Nobody was leaving the property without us checking their cars. 
I was out in the parking lot going through cars. Kevin was inside tearing the place up, looking for her, and finally he found her in an obscure classroom with his daughter who had taken her out of the nursery and just had her in that classroom where she had taken Katie to play. It was 30 minutes of sheer terror, sheer terror. And it really did. It took that long for us to find her. It was a half hour of turning everything upside down. And all of the emotions that we went through were very real. I've never seen my wife look that scared. I'm looking on milk cartons, thinking that her face is already there and and what in the world's going to happen. And we're playing out all the worst case scenarios. Well, imagine what it was like by day three for Joseph and Mary. They didn't have their son. And he says very calmly, what's the big deal? Do you know I'd be in my father's house? The King James Version of the Bible has Jesus saying, why did you look anyplace else? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Why'd you go anyplace else? I must be about my father's business. It's really quite an intriguing story when you see it and you put all of the details together and when you put the emotion into it, you can understand everything that they were going through as well as what Jesus was going through. And when all of that comes together, you can see the depth of this. But what most people miss is this. You can also see your own story in it. There is a lesson for every one of us to learn in here and it doesn't have anything to do with parenting. I don't want us to hang our hat on what Mary said to him or what Joseph was going through. I want you to hang your hat on this because this is the lesson to learn. Jesus' words to them should be your words. Why would you look for me anyplace else? I'm in my father's house. Why would you think that I would be anywhere else? I must be about my father's business. That's just good teaching. Because inasmuch as Jesus must be about his father's business, you should too. You should be about your father's business. You should be in his house and it ought to be the first place anybody would look for you. I must be about my father's business. There's a lot of confusion that comes out of that statement though. Some people would grab hold of this. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Mary would say to him, verse 48, His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. They would read that verse of Scripture and say that Mary called Joseph Jesus' father. Therefore, Joseph was the real father of Jesus, and the virgin birth didn't really happen. They'll try to destroy an entire doctrine by that one verse. And if you ever come across somebody that's trying to destroy the idea of the virgin birth based on this passage, and it does happen, you turn them back just one chapter. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? That's that's just a great question. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
The virgin birth matters in doctrine. The virgin birth matters in the teaching of the Bible. I showed you last week how you can trace your genealogy all the way back that you can be called a a son or a daughter of God, but your genealogy is different than Jesus' genealogy. He was fathered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and Jesus was conceived. Joseph was his earthly father. God was his heavenly father. Joseph adopted him no question about it, and raised him as his own son, but God was his heavenly father. So there's people that would think, as they read this passage in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus, when he would say, I must be in my father's house or about my father's business, what he really would have meant was that he should have been in the carpentry shop building furniture or out building houses, swinging a hammer and taking care of Joseph's business. Make no mistake about it, Jesus learned at the feet of his father. He learned carpentry. That was the way of the the times. He would have studied with his dad. He would have learned the business. There's strong speculation that after Joseph died for a number of years, Jesus ran the carpentry shop. But that's not what he's talking about. When he says, I must be about my father's business, he was talking about his heavenly father. I must be about his business. Now, this is the only story we have of Jesus' childhood in the New Testament. It's the only place that we get any type of a glimpse of what his life was like from the age of eight days old to the age of 30. But what a glimpse it is. And there are a couple of other little tiny shining moments that help us see what else was happening in his life. They surround this story. Go with me to Luke chapter 2 again. This time verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord... They returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. That's after the time that they were in Egypt and after Jesus had been presented in the temple. Now listen to verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. That's up to the age of 12. Look at what was happening in his life. He was growing in physical stature and he was growing in intellect. That's what he was doing. He was just being a little boy. He was growing up. That's the humanity of Jesus. And then by the time he was 12 years old, he found his way into the temple where we experience all those things that we read just a few minutes ago. He was there asking questions and challenging the teachers and everybody, including his parents, were astonished. But after the whole account, did you hear what happened? Did you catch it? Let's look at it one more time. We'll start in verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You know what he was doing after this account in the temple? He was growing up. That's what he was doing. But at this point, he's not just growing physically and in intellect. He is growing in wisdom and stature with favor with God and man, which means this. He was developing character and reputation. He'd already gained the intellect. Now he was developing character and reputation. Here's why I tell you that this story matters to us and there is so much for us to learn. The exact same pattern is true in our lives. You ever met a brand new Christian? Maybe when you first came to know Jesus, you were like this. They just zealously, zealously wanted to be used for the kingdom. So they went out and did all kinds of different things, and they messed it up time and time again. You ever met anybody like that? Anybody ever been like that? A lot of us have. 
The Apostle Paul was like that. After he became a Christian, he went back to Jerusalem where the apostles were at. He wanted to start preaching. But if you know anything about the apostle's life, prior to that, he'd been persecuting Christians. He'd been killing Christians. He was there when Stephen was stoned. So when he went back into Jerusalem and told the church that he was a new convert and he wanted to serve and he wanted to preach, you can imagine that they looked at him skeptically. Bible says that he caused so much damage at the church of Jerusalem, this is found in the book of Acts, that the apostles had to get him out of the city under the cover of darkness or he was going to be killed. And then what the Bible says next is just absolutely beautiful. It says very pointedly, and then the church enjoyed a time of great peace. (laughs) Paul was gone. And for the next three years, the church enjoyed a time of great peace. Well, there are a lot of people that come to know Christ and they forget about the growing process. They're babies in Christ, and they want to be used right now, and they want to be doing things right now, and they want to be thrown into the middle of service right now, well beyond their abilities, without growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. It is necessary for us to follow the same pattern, even though we want to be in our Father's house, and that's where we should be, and even though we want to be served, you got to grow up. Can anybody remember years when you were growing up of frustration because you just wanted to get on with your life? Anybody remember what that was like? Same thing happens in Christ, but we can frustrate things if we don't take the right steps. So Jesus took the right steps. He grew physically, he grew in intellect, and then he grew in character and he developed a reputation. And then he turned 30 years old. And when he turned 30 years old, it was time. He needed to get moving. It was time. The Bible would tell us that in the next three years, he would perform more miracles and do more things than could be contained in any library and all the books they could hold. He was busy. He was raising people from the dead. He was healing the sick. He was feeding the hungry. He was giving a drink to the thirsty. He was moving from town to town, sharing who he was, that people might understand who his heavenly father was. Jesus Christ was busy. For the three years of his active ministry, nothing could stop him from doing what he was supposed to do. He had an ordained job that would lead him all the way to the cross, and everything he did before it mattered. Oh, he spent the time growing up just like he should have, and then it was time for him to go to work. And this is what I want you to hear. His words in the temple to his parents need to be your words as well. I must be about my father's business. It's time to go to work. If you've been growing up in your faith, if you've been adding some tools to your faith, but you haven't done anything with them yet, it's time for you to go to work. It's time for you to get moving. It's time to be about your father's business. Now, you might ask a natural question. In fact, you'd be somewhat surprising if you didn't. The question is this, how in the world am I supposed to know what I am supposed to do? If I'm supposed to be about my father's business, what is his business that I am supposed to be involved in? How am I supposed to pull this off? I'm glad you asked. The Bible will help us figure it out. And I'll give you some other keys that will help figure it out. I have loved every stage of parenting. Arguably, the baby phase is not my favorite. Not at all. But every stage I have loved. But I do not believe I have loved any stage of parenting more than I love the one that we're in right now. Our oldest son is 22 years old. Our middle child, youngest son, is 19 years old. Going to be 19 years old, coming up on it. And Katie, our daughter, is 17 years old. 
From the time they were very small, we would ask questions like this. So what do you want to do when you grow up? And they'd give us all kinds of different answers. Want to be a fireman, want to be a policeman, want to be a cowboy, want to be a preacher, want to be just like you, Dad. Bless my heart. (laughs) Cowboy preacher. As they've gotten older, and we've asked those questions, and a certain urgency has been attached to it. It's no longer an ambiguous question that you ask little children. Now you're asking for a reason. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's been fun and still is fun to hear all of the answers that they share with us as they share their heart. Well, this is what I'm thinking about doing. This is what I'm really passionate about. And that's one of our fun questions. What are you really passionate about? And they start to share their hearts with us and love to receive what they have to say. And what we have discovered is that we have three children that are remarkably different from one another. They have different passions. They have different desires. They have different skills and abilities. And even though, especially with our boys, when they were very young, they would oftentimes say they wanted to do the same thing. As they've grown older, a a greater distance has grown in those desires, and they've been able to share with us what they want to do. Nick, our oldest, went to Bible college for three semesters, and then he came home at Christmas and sat with us and said, college is not my thing. I don't want to do this. And we said, okay, what is your thing? What do you want to do? What, what has been rising up within you? And, and he said this, again, blessing to my heart. He said, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> okay. And so he, he wanted to be a cowboy. You know what he's doing right now? He's a cowboy. He's chasing what he wants to do. And it's cool to talk with him and to hear all of the stories about what's going on in his life. Eli, his brother, has just started school. He wants to work in the medical professions. And so he's shared with us what he wants to do for the past couple of years. And he is laser focused on his plan. That plan could change again, but he is laser focused on it. Here's the difference between Eli and Nick. Though they have many of the same interests, Eli's going to spend a lot of years in college. Nick could handle it for three semesters and then said, I'm done. Our daughter says, I want to be a children's minister and I want to work in the church. Cool. So she's going to do that next year when she graduates. She's going to go to Bible college so that she can get the education that she needs to work in a church and to be a children's minister, and we're thrilled about that. But we don't stop with that question. And parents, listen to me. You shouldn't either. You ask your children this question following that one. What do you want to be when you grow up? Then you ask them what they're going to do for the kingdom. What are you going to do for the kingdom? I don't care whether you're a cowboy or whether you're in the medical profession or whether you work in a church. What are you going to do for the kingdom? It's fun to listen to our boys who had the wonderful privilege of growing up with godly men all around them, leaders in the church. And both of them would tell you that they want to be a leader in the church, though they don't want to be a paid staff member. They don't want to be a preacher like their dad, but they want to be leaders in the church. I couldn't be any happier about that. That's what they want to do for the kingdom. Their sister wants to be on staff in a church because she has spent her life watching people like Beth and Sharon and what they have done with their skills and their giftedness. And Katie has said, that's what I want to do. She wants to work in the church just like they have. They've been taught and raised up under people like that that have shown them a a way that they could be used, understanding that their giftedness, that their talents are never to just be thrown away. Well, the same thing is true for you. What do you want to do when you grow up? And what are you going to do for the kingdom? Simple questions. What do you want to do when you grow up? Some of you are 70 years old going, huh, i got to figure that out. Well, if you haven't figured that one out, then you figure this one out because this one matters. What are you going to do for the kingdom? 
What are you going to do that makes you about your father's business? Because you have to do something. You have to do something. Tina and I spent the first years of our ministry watching churches that botched this over and over and over again. And here's how they did it. And still, it goes on in a lot of different churches in many places. But because we lived in the buckle of the Bible Belt, we had a lot of churches to watch. 10% of the people in those churches would do 90% of the work in those churches. 10% of the people in most churches, the average church, do 90% of the work. And the other people in the church are able to just kick up their feet and say, well, I don't have to do anything because Johnny and Susie are going to do it and they're going to take care of everything. Do you know that that is not God's design? That is not the way a church is supposed to work. 10% of the people are not supposed to do 90% of the work. 90% of the people are supposed to do 100% of the work. And the other 10% are new Christians that are going to be grafted into the rest of it. And they're going to start working as new people come into the church. That's God's design. We can never say that 100% of the church is supposed to do 100% of the work because the moment we do, we're no longer reaching anybody that isn't saved. So 90% of the people need to be doing 100% of the work and the other 10% of the people need to be watching what they're doing. In the mid-90s, Tina and I were hired at that church in St. Louis that I was telling you about. My job description was simple. I was to become an involvement minister. I said, what's that mean? The man that hired me said, I have no idea because nobody's ever been hired as an involvement minister. We don't know what that is, but do it. Okay. There was one other involvement minister. He was hired about the same time I was. His name was Brett D. Young. He was at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. We were the only two involvement ministers in the United States of America. Our job was to empower people and enable people to use their giftedness in the church and to turn them loose. That's what we did. I was hired at the same time as an adult discipleship or an adult education minister. His job was to educate them. My job was to turn them loose. We had some great arguments, oftentimes even fights, about which one was most important, education or service. But here's what it really boils down to. They both matter. Grow in wisdom and stature, no question about it, but then you grow in favor with God and man, and you get moving. Develop your character and your reputation and get moving. When we came to Libby, Montana, we brought the involvement idea with us. And today, this church is full of servants. Full of servants. Let me give you some examples because you don't hear about a lot of this. And I understand that. So I want you to know, for the past couple of weeks, 14 men have been building a fence for a family that just really needed a fence. They had the time and the knowledge and the skills and the tools to do it. All of them had construction experience at some level, and they came together to get this fence up to bless this family. The name and the details behind it doesn't matter. You just need to know that the family was blessed by the men that built this fence. I wasn't there. Deanie wasn't there. I don't think we had one elder there, did we? There wasn't one elder that was a part of that team. They built a fence. Last week, we had a group of women that led 130, 140 ladies in a wonderful women's day here. They have a heart and a passion for what happens with women. So they put the whole thing together. They made it happen. This week, a bunch of quilters are going to come in and take over our building. God, help us. They're going to take over the whole building. And and these ladies that have a heart and a a desire and giftedness with quilting are going to bless other people. That's fun. 
In a few weeks, the fall party is going to take over and a whole new team of people are going to transform our building and the fall party is going to reach out to our community. This past Wednesday, I don't even know how many people were involved in helping kick off the 1014 ministry to 4th, 5th, and 6th graders. All I know is that when I showed up, those kids were having a great time. There were people there with gifts of administration and organization, people there with gifts with food, people there with gifts as simple as this. They just love to play with kids. They were playing with kids. There were 90 to 100 of those kids that were there. How cool is that? And that would have never happened if those people hadn't come together to make it happen. On Thursday night, Celebrate Recovery is led by a group of volunteers in this church. Our Stephen ministry is made up of people that are using their giftedness and life experience to minister to other people. Primetimers ministry is built by a bunch of people that just make it happen. The food pantry and the mission shop do the same thing. Our candle ministry fits in the same category. Monday night, we had a group of people here that have a heart for global missions and local missions, and they were keeping our missions program on track. We have a group of people that work in our finance ministry, and they keep the church on track financially. We have a group of people that serve in our office. We have people that prepare communion. We have people that work in our technical ministries, obviously our worship ministry, on and on and on and on and on and on this list goes. There are over 30 organized ministries at Libby Christian Church, and I can't tell you how many people serve in all of those areas because they have found their giftedness and they have found their place, and they are about their father's business. Isn't that great? That's how the church is built. That's how a church grows, by releasing people into ministry, and that's how the kingdom becomes what it is supposed to become, off of people just like you and just like me, using the gifts that God has given us. And you might say, he hadn't given me any. And I would tell you that you are either a liar or you have been highly, highly deceived because God has given you gifts. He has given you certain things that you are to use for the kingdom of God that you might be about your father's business. I'll show you a parable that lays that out. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. First book of the New Testament, Matthew 25. I'm going to have Tina come up here and read this for you. We're going to start in verse 14, and we will go down. We'll go through verse 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gave five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of people have preached this passage and taught this passage at different times. And there's all kinds of opinions about the significance of it and even the truth of it. Here's what I believe with all of my heart. This passage is about God and his children. God and his servants. He has given every one of us certain gifts and abilities, talents, if you will, from Scripture. And with those come great expectations. Now, what are you going to do with it? Now, some people would say that can't be the case because this last servant, the one that was given one talent, says that the master is wicked and that he harvests where he is not sown and, and so on. You heard all of that. Well, here's my answer to that. That man may very well have not known the master. Because the other two servants were thrilled to do what they had done. This man, though he was called a servant, seemed to have a limited understanding of who the master was. But more than that, when the master came back and that man had nothing to report, he started to make excuses and he started blaming God for his inactivity. You ever met anybody that's blamed God for their inactivity? Maybe they've been disappointed with God. Maybe they've been upset with God, so they start blaming God. That's what this man did. Pay close attention to the first two, though. They took the talents that they were given. One man given five, he multiplied them and gave back ten. The man that was given two multiplied them and gave back four. The man that was given one talent did nothing. He did nothing. He didn't even put it in the bank and bring it back with interest. He did nothing. Those first two were about their master's business. They were about their father's business, and they were multiplying what they were given. That last man, you heard exactly what it was. He was wicked and he was lazy. As far as I can tell from this passage, there are two things that we can hear when we stand before God. Well done, my good and faithful servant, or you wicked and lazy servant. Which one do you want to hear? Which one will you hear? You see, that's a question that we have to reconcile for ourselves. Which one will you hear? What have you done with the talents, the gifts, the abilities that God has given you? And He has given them to you. What have you done with them? You know, there are passages that are fun to preach as a preacher. There are messages that are fun to preach as a preacher because you get to make everybody just feel good. This is not one of those passages. This is not one of those messages. When it comes down to it, though, trust me on this, you do not want a preacher that only makes you feel good. You do not want a preacher that only tells you that everything you're doing is right and everything is good. You want a preacher that's going to stretch you and challenge you. And right now, I hope you're being stretched and challenged. Because you have to ask yourself, which which one of those statements is coming my way? Well done, good and faithful servant, or you wicked and lazy servant? If this man really was the one with the one talent, a believer, if he really was a servant of God, when God says, throw him out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, does that mean that he lost his salvation? I don't necessarily know that it does. 
I believe that it may very well mean just this, that he was thrown into the shadows of the kingdom and he never got to accomplish anything. You don't want to live in the shadows of the kingdom. You don't want to be out there where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's rumors and backbiting and excuses and blame. You want to live right in the center of the kingdom where you are about your father's business. So just do it. God has given you talents, gifts, abilities to be used in the kingdom. Just use them. Be about your father's business for this reason. We are living right between verses 18 and 19 in Matthew 25. Listen to this again. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. We're living right between those verses. That's where we're at. So what are you doing with your talents? God's going to settle the account, be it when he calls all of us into heaven or when you go there because you've died, he's going to settle accounts. What are you doing with what he's given you? You may still be saying, I don't even know what that is. I don't know how to be used because I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know what my abilities are. Well, there's four things that can help you with that. Number one, you have to figure out what your spiritual giftedness is. There are tools to help with that, and we've shared those with you before. If you want to talk about spiritual gifts, we can help you do that. Then you have to figure out what your talents are. Then you have to figure out what your desires are. And then you figure out what your interests are, and you wrap it all together with that last one. Your interest, wrap the other three together. Figure out what your gifts are, figure out what your talents are, figure out what your desires are, and then wrap it all together with your interest and get busy. It's just that simple. It really is. Just get busy. Be about your father's business. I want to give you a couple passages of Scripture, more motivational than anything else to help with this. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Some of you are thinking, is that true about this sermon too? Is that near? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Here's what Peter's teaching. Just get busy. Just get busy. Use whatever gift, whatever talent it is that you have. Just get busy. God will bless it. You just get moving. God will bless it. And you see what happens. Now, still some of you are saying, I don't know what those gifts are. Well, you have to know this. This is found in the 37th Psalm, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God wants you to chase the desires that are within you. So if you have a strong relationship with him, if you have grown in wisdom and stature and now favor with God and man, God wants you to experience your desires in the kingdom He wants you to be used within those desires and within that giftedness because, as Peter would say, the time is short. There is not enough time between verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 25 for you to drag your feet any longer. The time is short. So do something with it for the kingdom that you might hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, and not my wicked and lazy servant. Those are tough words. So you just got to get busy and do something with it. 
It's a fun thing when you realize that it's not just within the church that you can do that. You can take it outside of the church. I look around this room and see all kinds of people that do that. They are busy in their father's business outside of this place as well. We have teachers that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into their classrooms every day. We have business owners that when they open their doors are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to those that they work with, but those that they serve. We have salespeople in this congregation that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with them everywhere they go. We have construction workers that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with them everywhere they go. We have people that work for the government, both at the Forest Service and the Corps of Engineers, that are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ with them everywhere they go. This list just goes on and on and on. We have people that work for the city, the state, the county that are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ with them everywhere they go. We have loggers that understand that their father's business at times is in the woods. We have people that understand that their father's business is everywhere and they're doing it. But we also have other people, and this is the hard part of this message, that are doing nothing. They're doing nothing. You don't want to hear my wicked and lazy servant. You want to hear well done. You really do. Here are three things that can help you figure this out. The first one is this. Are you coveting somebody else's spot in the kingdom? That is an easy trap that stagnates people all the time, and we can fall into it without even trying. Are you coveting someone else's spot? Let me illustrate for you. David was up here leading us in worship just a few minutes ago. David can sing wonderfully. Liz was playing the piano, and she can play the piano beautifully. I would love to be able to sing and play the piano. I will never be able to sing and play the piano. That has been validated repeatedly by teachers, by the people around me, and by God. I will never be able to do that. So the stupidest thing in the world for me is to covet David's spot as a worship leader. God's given me other gifts. He has chosen not to give me these, so I better follow my other gifts. Are you coveting somebody else's spot? Stop it. Just stop it. Do you need to get some education that you might be able to chase the desires of your heart in the kingdom? Then get that education. That doesn't mean going to college. Sometimes that simply means getting some time invested in a ministry that you can learn what happens there. I'll illustrate again. Let's say that you have a strong desire for middle school, high school students. Maybe you remember how tough those years were for you when you were growing up and and you want to help people in the same situation, but you don't necessarily want to be thrown into the spotlight where you have to teach or you have to lead, at least not yet. You want to be able to figure out student ministry. Then you go to Matt and you say, Matt, I I need to use this giftedness for the kingdom with middle school and high school students. Can I spend a few months just getting to know them? Can I spend a few months just seeing what all's going on? I promise you Matt will say yes. He'll say yes. Then you learn how to minister to to middle school, high school students, and then you'll be turned loose in it. Get the education you need. Grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Develop a reputation based on your character with those students, and you'll have effective ministry. So get involved with them. Just talk to Matt or anybody else that you find yourself wanting to be a part of the ministries that they are a part of. Here's the third one. Do you have time to serve in the kingdom right now? I'll answer that question for you. You do not have time not to because the time is short. The time is short. We are between verses 18 and 19. What are you doing there? What are you doing with your talents, your gifts, your abilities? You have to figure that out. 
Ask those three questions. It'll help you get moving. If you need more help, talk to any one of our ministry leaders. Talk to an elder. Talk to any of our staff members. We'll help you figure it out. You have a unique place in the kingdom of God. Now be about his business. Do what needs to be done. Churches all across, well, really all across the world, are full of what I refer to as sponges. People that are incredibly hungry and thirsty for the Word of God. They're like a brand new sponge when they come into the the kingdom and they want to just soak up as much as they can possibly soak up. But did you know that there's a point with a sponge where it is no longer worth anything? It soaks up so much that it can't soak up anymore until somebody squeezes it a little bit, wrings it out, and then it's useful again. Folks, today my goal is to squeeze you just a little bit. That some of the things that you've been taught and the things that you have learned will come out and you'll use them. And then soak up some more and then use it some more. Don't become a, a useless, worthless sponge in the kingdom of God. Let somebody squeeze you. And I hope that happened today. Why don't you stand and pray with us. Father in heaven, as I look at how you've designed your kingdom, it is, it's just mind-boggling to me. There's a place for everybody. In fact, I've never found anybody that you didn't have a place for. I'm grateful for that. Lord, I'm even more thankful for the fact that you found a place for me. I know that other people have experienced the same thing, and it's awe-inspiring. It's humbling, but awe-inspiring. I pray, Father, for those that haven't. Would you stir their heart? Would you inspire their soul? Would you squeeze them a little bit, push them a little bit, so that they will? In Jesus' name, amen.